The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome, everybody. You're watching Squawk Box with uh, Steve Sedgwick, Karen Cho and me, Jeff Cutmore. Let's get into your headlines. Ukraine's foreign minister says Kyiv will not trade its sovereignty but wants a ceasefire from today's talks. While US President Joe Biden refuses to walk back remarks about leadership change in Russia. My outrage at the behavior of this man, it's outrageous. It's outrageous. And... It's more an aspiration than anything. He shouldn't be in power. There's no, I mean, people like this shouldn't be ruling countries, but they do. G7 allies reject Russia's demand to be paid for oil and gas in rubles, with the German finance minister telling CNBC he takes a firm stance against pressure from Moscow. We are complete, uh, completely against any kind of blackmailing. The treaties, the trade treaties um, are based on uh, euro and dollar and so uh, we suggest the private sector companies to pay in euro um, uh, or dollar. Oil continues losses as Shanghai enters day two of its COVID lockdown while the UAE's energy minister emphatically tells CNBC Russia will always remain a key player in OPEC+. Plus. OPEC plus alone cannot do it. We need the, the other producers to do, to, their, to do their part. Russia is going to be part of that group and we need to respect them. The gap between the two and 10-year Treasury yields narrows to its lowest level since March 2020 as an inversion further along the curve raises recession fears. The yield on the Japanese 10-year note lingers near the BOJ's upper bound despite the Japanese central bank stepping in yet again. Ukrainian Foreign Minister Dmitry Kaleba has said he will not be, quote, trading people, land or sovereignty at today's talks with Russia in Istanbul, the first in-person negotiations in two weeks. Kaleba said his side hopes at the very least to make progress on humanitarian issues, with the most ambitious goal being a ceasefire agreement. Well, Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, has called again for allies to increase military assistance and impose an oil embargo on Russia before it's too late. Just think about that we end up waiting for chemical weapons to be used before an oil embargo is imposed on Russia. We, living people, have to wait. But doesn't everything that Russian troops have already done merit an oil embargo? Don't force first bombs merit it? Don't shelled chemical plants or a shelled nuclear plant merit it? Fear always makes you responsible. If someone is afraid of Russia, afraid of taking necessary and for us important decisions so that we can, in particular, get jets, tanks and necessary artillery, shells, then it makes these people responsible for this catastrophe that Russian troops created in our cities.
Meanwhile, US President Joe Biden has refused to apologize for his comment that Russian President Vladimir Putin, quote, cannot remain in power despite drawing global criticism for appearing to call for regime change. The fact of the matter is I was expressing the more outrage I felt toward the way Putin is dealing and the actions of this man, just, just brutality of half the children in Ukraine. I had just come from being with those families. And, uh, and so, uh, but I want to make it clear, I wasn't then, nor am I now, articulating a policy change. I was expressing the moral outrage that I feel, and I make no apologies for it. Ukraine's president says his country's forces have regained control of Irpin, a town on the outskirts of Kiev. Now, Zelensky also said troops are making progress in pushing the Russians back from the capital. Russian troops are still in control in some of the northern parts of Kiev. NBC's Richard Engel has the latest from the front lines. The Russian military claims it's shifting the focus of its invasion to eastern Ukraine. But that could be just a way of trying to save face after images like these. More today of what Ukraine says are Russian vehicles it destroyed outside the capital, Kyiv. The mayor of the nearby suburb of Irpin claimed Ukrainian forces liberated that area too. In the east, Russia has destroyed a lot, but conquered little. The city of Mariupol, bombed relentlessly and surrounded, is still resisting. On the outskirts of Kharkiv, Serhii and his unit of fellow volunteers are holding up Mariupol as an example. He wears an American flag on his flak jacket. He says it represents freedom. His gun was donated by Ukrainian Americans. We're hearing a lot of fire right now. It sounds very intense. What's been happening here? We've repelled every Russian assault, he says. Now they're just bombing us from afar. In the center of Kharkiv, families wait out what may be a long war of attrition in the subway stations. But today came a welcome surprise. A troupe of children's entertainers is making the rounds of the stations, helping the kids burn off energy, laugh and dance. The kids loved it. And like a birthday party, at the end, everyone lined up for a treat. Except here, nobody went home after. They'll be spending another night on the floor, hiding from Russian bombs. G7 energy ministers have rejected Moscow's request for oil and gas payments to be made in rubles. German economy minister Robert Habeck said that ministers agreed that changing the payment currency would be a breach of existing contracts. Russian lawmaker Ivan Abramov told state-owned news agency RIA that the G7's position would lead to a halt in supplies. The UAE's energy minister Suhal al-Mazrouri has said the world's major energy producers will need to be able to fill the potential energy shortage on their own. He spoke to Hadley on the sidelines of the World Government Summit in Dubai. OPEC Plus alone cannot do it. We need the the other producers to do, to, their, to do their part. But the problem is when the investors are not encouraged and when the shareholders of the IOCs and some countries are banding uh, the, the investments, then they should not blame it on us. Yeah. They should come and change, put a strategy. Uh, plus, who can replace Russia today? 
I cannot think of a country that can in a year, two, three, four, even ten years yeah. replace a ten million barrels. It's so just not realistic is what you're it's saying. It's not realistic. To people who understand the market and deal with the fundamentals every day. It's not realistic and this talk is only going to push the prices higher. They know it's not going it's not possible. So if someone is saying we're gonna put more pressure, we squeeze the barrels, they're not going to be squeezed. They will go to Ama to other to another market, another buyer who would like the discount and we will end up in a situation where the prices are even higher. And that is, that is hurting the economies. We care about the consuming nations and we care about the consumers wherever they are. This is a relationship that we established and would like to have it for long. We cannot just be reactive in this, in this file and say we will put more oil in the market when the market is well supplied. So we will meet end of the of this, of this, uh, end of this week and uh, by end of the month and we will look what can we do but always Russia is going to be part of that group and we need to respect them and we need when we go there and talk we need to talk technical and we need to talk sense and we need to speak on behalf of the consuming nations and the consumers that we give them what they require. I wonder if anyone from OPEC will ever uh, condone uh, what's going on in Ukraine or ever say that they don't condone it. It's, uh, it's interesting, isn't it? No moral stance from OPEC whatsoever. OK, we'll have more from Minister Al-Masruri later this morning when our colleague Hadley Gamble will speak to him and Saudi Arabian Energy Minister Abdulaziz bin Salman as well as the Prime Minister of Kurdistan region of Iraq, uh, Masur Badzuni, uh, at a panel of the World Government Summit in Dubai, uh, that's coming up at 8 CET. Also coming up on the show, the BOJA defends its ultra-loose policy as the yen sinks to a seven-year low versus the greenback. And you can stay across the latest on the Russia-Ukraine peace talks uh, on the Squawk Box podcast, available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. As the bond route grips the headlines, investors have been taking uh, the moves back into the equity markets uh, fairly strenuously, in, particularly in the growth area of the market. Worth noting that uh, we've had this area of the market concerned about rising interest rates. And here we have, as market rates have been lifting, the tech sector has been well supported and big name stock moves yesterday. The likes of Microsoft, again, one of the headline stocks as we talk about markets near records. Typically, a Microsoft does show some strength. We saw that uh, one 
the big catalyst for the Dow in trade yesterday. Also big momentum players, Tesla, very strong player for the S&P and also for the Nasdaq. But as you can see, the outsized gain, 1.3% on the Nasdaq versus the Dow. Think about the narrative here. A lot of investors talking about stagflation as their playbook already. The big question is whether we're also looking at a much harder landing, a recession potentially around the rate path that is now projected by a lot of the investment banks as they weigh up just what the language has been from the Fed. 50 basis point rate hikes and potentially a series of meetings this year and continuing with those hikes into next year. So investors just reshuffling those equity portfolios and stretching for growth at this point. And let me take you to the Treasury market and you can see how we are now perched. The two and the 10, we've seen a flattening here as well. 2.41 on the two year, 2.48 on the 10 year. That is a difference of just uh, seven basis points this morning. So effectively, we are now seeing that the flattening take place here and the spare gap is a narrow since about March 2020. Also worth noting the inversion that has happened between the five and the long end. 2.59 is what we've got on that five-year yield. 2.563 basis points below that five. So again, we are watching that inversion, which uh, a lot of investors are continuing to watch across the, with a broader curve, the two and some of the longer dated as well. That is uh, the territory we're also closely eyeing if it happens. Now, when it comes to global yields, I want to take you to the broader market because there's been a huge focus on the JGB, which has again stepped into the market with these unlimited purchases, trying to anchor the 10-year uh, JGB yield at around that 0.25% mark. The big question, I think, for a lot of investors is whether this can be sustained, whether it can continue, or whether this really is just a short-term move to try and anchor these yields and stop them following global yields higher. And uh, as uh, we talk about those high yields, near 2.5% on the US 10-year yield, you can see uh, the Bund in Germany 0.58 of a percent. I mean, we've spent a lot of time in recent years in negative territory, but here we are perched uh, close to the 6 tenths uh, or 0.6 of a percent mark on yields here in the UK. Gilts 1.61 is where we're trading. So we're marching high across the board. I want to take you to what we're seeing on foreign exchange markets with that intervention by the BOJ. It is uh, one worth uh, looking at a little bit deeper because you can see after the big slump we had in the end yesterday, we do have a little bit of dollar wheat in this, this morning as the and tries to claw back some territory. 130, 123, the handle or 0.4 of a percent down on dollar. Sterling and euro also wrestling back some control versus the greenback. When it comes to commodity prices, uh, let's just check on that oil story because there has been a little bit of a dent to the demand sentiment lately around that two-day lockdown in Shanghai to tame the COVID situation. So we do have, again, another pullback, 1% down on Brent, about 9 tenths on WCI, around the 105 handle. Gold not exactly gaining much traction at this hour. You can see also just a little bit soggy in the early morning trade here. 19.22 on the, the ticket. Let's get to Asia. The early trade across these markets is modestly firmer. Very similar percentage gains from Australia to Hong Kong to Japan, roughly six to seven tenths of a percent upside. The Shanghai market, the opposite though, you could see it is pulling back 14 points, so almost half of 1%. So not exactly picking up from that Wall Street trade. The other markets, though, supported very much like those US stocks. Now, the opening calls here in Europe, we had a modestly firmer day for the stock ship 600. We're up about a tenth of a percent, but much firmer trade in some of those individual core markets, namely Germany was up about three quarters of 1%. This morning, we are chasing a little bit more, as you can see on these markets. We've got 99 on the DAX, 41 on the French market, and 30 on the FTSE here in the UK. This was one that was slightly left behind. I think that oil story just entered into some of those energy stocks. And you can see this morning is looking to gain a little bit of traction again with the rest of Europe. Jeff.
Okay, let's focus on uh, Shanghai. The city has introduced economic support measures for companies struggling to cope as uh, the city introduces now a phased lockdown amid the spread of the Omicron variant. The eastern side of the city is under restrictions until the end of this week, with the western side entering lockdown the following week. Authorities have asked people to stay indoors and have also set up mass testing across both areas. Japanese stocks are leading Asian markets higher after the BOJ defended its ultra-loose monetary policy. The move prompted the yen to hit a seven-year low versus the greenback. But a summary statement of opinions from its March meeting showed some policymakers have highlighted the growing inflationary risk. Despite this, the central bank has continued its 10-year government bond purchase operation for a second day in a bid to keep the yield uh, under the 0.25% ceiling. The bank says the purchases will continue until Thursday. Right, what's going on here? Uh, let's speak to uh, Marcel Tillyant, who is uh, senior Japan, Australia and New Zealand economist at Capital Economics. Uh, Marcel, thank you very much indeed for joining us. So let, let's just look at the longer term. They've got a, a time bomb on demographics, which could potentially create a time bomb on their 250% debt to GDP. But in the short term, they have a 2.7% unemployment rate. They have massive increase uh, in the commodity bill and they have a plummeting uh, currency. Why don't the Japanese seem to have an inflation problem? Well, it, it all dates back to the uh, 1990s bubble uh, when, when which burst and which um, resulted in a prolonged period of, of deleveraging and deflation and that specter is still haunting the Japanese economy. So even with, with an unemployment rate uh, very low by, by any standards, it's quite difficult to generate uh, strong wage increases. So the current unemployment rate is consistent with on past form with, with wage increases of around half a percent. And it's very difficult to get uh, sustained wage increases above one percent because of that um, persistent deflationary mindset, as the Bank of Japan likes to call it. So we will see, obviously, high inflation in the next few months because of higher energy prices uh, and other commodity prices, but it will be very difficult for inflation to, to be sustainably above the bank's 2% target, which is uh, what the Bank of Japan is aiming for. Could the um, currency decline be a catalyst for a more problematic scenario for the central bank? I noticed that the, the politicians seem quite concerned about a weaker yen, but to Mr. Kuroda, uh, more than happy to see it decline. There are some other economists out there, to yourself, Marcel, who think we could go as low as 150 uh, on the dollar yen if this carries on in the same ilk. Uh, well, that's certainly not our forecast, given how uh, low the, the real effective exchange rate already is. Uh, it, it also, if you, if you compare the current depreciation to what has happened, what happened um, after uh, Prime Minister Abe returned to power in 2012, it's actually quite modest. And also, the the increase in the absolute increase in, in import prices uh, is nowhere near the scale that we saw back then. And it's worth remembering that back then, inflation never got to to two percent. Uh, it will get two percent now, but that's entirely because of the the surging energy prices. Uh, the, the the weaker yen, as such, is not uh, sufficient to generate a large enough price increases for the Bank of Japan to tighten policy. As we look at the movements in asset prices over the last few weeks here, um, are we at risk of forgetting that this is a year-end approaching 
for Japan and that the finance ministry is basically out there encouraging companies to invest in stocks, in JGBs at this point, just to slightly improve the um, year-end print. To what extent is what's going on at the moment over this last few weeks anomalous when we think about what is likely to happen once we get beyond Thursday? Well, it's, it's certainly anonymous because we've never seen uh, a response by the Bank of Japan to, to develop to the bar market as we've seen in the last couple of days. Um, I mean, I, I don't think there's any particular year-end uh, issue at play. I've never seen that um, in, in previous years. Uh, but the Bank of Japan has, has obviously never conducted two fixed rate auctions on, on one day for the same maturity range. It also launched for the first time ever these, these um, consecutive auctions on, on several days. And if that wasn't enough, e even that didn't do the trick. So they today had to do another regular fixed rate auction on top of those consecutive fixed rate auctions. So this is clearly unprecedented. Um, though it's not unprecedented for yields to be at the upper end of the Bank of Japan's target range. So I guess the Bank of Japan must have information that we don't, we can't see from from the, the yields alone that, that there's relentless upward pressure on yields that they, they have to fight at the moment. And I guess the, the main driver, rather than any any efforts by by Japanese firms to to um, make their, their balance sheets look more pretty, is is just a relentless sell-off in, in global bond markets. That's, that's the main driver here. Marcel's Karen jumping in. I want to ask you if there's any messaging here for global investors because everybody's claiming this wall of worry about what's happening on the bond market and just how aggressive central banks will be this year. But in Japan, as we listen to Kuroda, he's much more concerned about growth. He's worried about the, the type of bad inflation we're seeing in the system. Is Japan a very different situation as we talk about very long journey trying to get, to get back to target on inflation? Or do you think there is messaging here that international investors need to watch out for? Well, there, there is some messaging in there. I mean, it, it's it's clear that if central banks do step on the brakes too too rapidly and too too aggressively, that that uh, the economy will take a hit. But I, I I think that the point is that when you have U.S. inflation running at, at almost eight percent, you need to step on the brakes. Otherwise, you, you won't get it under control. And our view is that central banks need to get this under control. Otherwise, they they risk um, imprinting inflation. Uh, for, for high inflation for a long period of time. So, so you need to have some negative economic impact. But uh, on the other hand, Japan, yes, Japan is, is also different. I mean, the, the, the reason why the Bank of Japan is, is pushing back so, so harshly against uh, the sell-off is because it doesn't see the same inflationary pressures as, as other central banks are seeing. Because again, uh, Japan is different. There's this inflationary mindset that is very difficult to eradicate. Why is that, Marcel? Because it seems to me that people have waited a long time for chickens to come home to roost as the series of successive governments since the great crash for Japan have refused serious structural reforms in the way that we would anticipate would mould Japan to look like a liberal uh, democratic economy. Instead, it has closed many areas of its economy to foreign competition, specifically agriculture. And I think the, the, the story around uh, the, refusal, the refusal to allow uh, significant immigration in to bolster the workforce is really well understood. So to what extent is this a canary in the coal mine moment for successive governments refusing that structural adjustment? Uh, well, you're absolutely right that Japan is um, 
largely closed to foreign competition. There's very little inboard foreign direct investment. Uh, and that's a key reason why productivity growth in Japan has been very weak o- over the last decade. And we, we know that the productivity of foreign firms operating in Japan is, is much higher than, than the one of domestic firms, but there's just not enough of them and, and they're facing barriers on all fronts. But another big factor is also the, the lifetime employment model. The lifetime employment model is as popular as ever, and very few people are, are changing jobs. And that in turn makes, makes it easy for employers to keep wage costs down because people, people are not responding to a tight labor market by, by changing jobs, so other firms have no incentive to offer higher wages either. And that keeps this kind of uh, almost vicious circle in place where, where no one is, is forced to to hike wages even even when they're having severe difficulties finding new staff. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.